You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. The, the, week's, uh, the week's sessions, the evening sessions, I've been entitled them for my own sake, a focus on method. A focus on method, just how do you go about the actual counseling enterprise? Is there a game plan? Is there a way of thinking that, that grows out of all the materials that uh, we've done some thinking about that can, that can give some guidance as to what are the important things to, to deal with as you, as you counsel with folks? What, what do you need to think about? We're hoping to be very, very practical this week. Certainly there will be a fair amount of theoretical material, but we really hope there will be a, a lot of practical material. What is, what is biblical change all about? A great number of people have pretty well given up any hope of meaningfully changing. A lot of folks who come for counseling have been to four or five others ahead of you, and when they come to you, there is a certain desperateness in their voice as they wonder if you're going to have something that's going to make more of a difference than the previous four counselors, the previous 20 years in evangelical churches. How does change really take place? What does change look like? We're going to attempt to, to think through a game plan for dealing with the whole topic of, whole topic of change. And I want to let you know where my mind is as we begin this week. There are probably two major influences that um, are going on inside of me as I have prepared these lectures and thought these things through. What I'm going to be sharing with you this week really is the result of what I've been teaching up in our program the last two years in the course that we call CORE, which I teach every Wednesday from 1 to 5. In the spring semester, I do teach our course on, on, on a counseling method. And um, we've been doing this course now for 10 years. And last year, I put together something that I finally kind of liked a little bit. And then I changed it around for this year. And uh, what you're going to get is the revised version of what I'm teaching in my counseling classes as to counseling method. There are two major influences, I've said, and they are these. Two things on my mind as I have developed these lectures and want to give them to you this week. The first is, as I travel about, I do a lot of conversing with folks in various parts of the country and people in different ministries, counseling-related type ministries, and there are a number of questions that strike me as being rather thematic, a number of questions that people are asking, and I'm going to talk about four questions tonight that um, are very much on my mind as I think through counseling method. What is on the mind of people in the Christian community who are counseling, who are dealing with people, there strike me, it seems to me that there are four major questions. I'm sure there's 50,000 more, and maybe the ones that I'm going to mention are not, don't happen to be yours, but they're the ones that I've noticed. Four major questions that Christian counselors seem to be asking in contemporary American culture. I'll be discussing those in just a moment. The second major input to my lectures is some thinking that I've been doing that maybe can be expressed this way. As I think about counseling, it strikes me that, that I'm developing a growing conviction that most of our efforts to counsel in the Christian community may be really built on a very bad foundation. And the direction that we're going, meaning well, and I'm not talking about those outside of IBC who don't know, you know our way of doing things. I'm talking about all of us. I'm talking about me that maybe there's uh, some very subtly wrong foundations on which we're building our counseling efforts. And I want to be speaking about, about those, those two things as I develop the issue of method. Let me talk first about these four questions that I wonder if maybe are on your mind a little bit. Four questions as to um, what is going on in the counseling world. Four common questions. The first one that I'm hearing a lot recently, I got two recent letters about it. 
how do we handle unusual problems? How do we handle the more bizarre kinds of issues, like multiple personality disorder? That seems to be the growing concern of a great number of people. I just mentioned to you that within the last two weeks, or maybe just a week, I received two letters uh, asking me about the issues having to do with MPD. One is from a gentleman who's here at the conference this week. Another was from a church staff member who wrote to me because one of our graduates is counseling in their church counseling department, and they're getting a fair number of people who seem to fit the diagnostic category MPD, multiple personality. And the question that she's asking is, do we have any business trying to help people with that severe a pathology? Does the training that IBC offers speak to that particular issue? Let me talk about that for a few minutes. Let me tell you some of the issues that that question raises for me, speaking specifically about MPD, but speaking more broadly about more unusual kinds of difficulties. How many of you have counseled recently with a person who you've entitled MPD, you've diagnosed MPD? A fair number of hands, 20, 30 hands have gone up. Is it the case that you feel, as so many do, that um, when you counsel with someone with something that's a little more out of the norm, don't you sometimes feel that your understanding of the Christian life is really not adequate to deal with that particularly kind of severe problem? And don't you sometimes feel that you need a special wisdom, a special degree of understanding, some special insights that um, are necessary for dealing with an MPD? What would you all expect if we had announced a, well, uh, an afternoon workshop this week on MPD? I imagine a fair number of you would go. Wouldn't that be rather intriguing for a fair number? If you've dealt with an MPD, you know it's a rather strange phenomenon that very unusual kinds of things happen. The very first MPD I ever worked with years ago in my private uh, time in Boca Raton, Florida, was a woman who, when she came in to see me, she was um, maybe 40 years old and she was a very shy, withdrawn kind of a lady who came in for depression, which is a rather common presenting complaint uh, for folks who later seem to indicate some MPD-type structure. And she came in to see me. Uh, concerned about being very depressed and very down on herself and crying all the time. And about, as I recall, about the fourth session, this woman who was sitting there typically very hunched over, kind of legs together in sort of a, a scared, timid kind of a position, with for, for a reason that I didn't have any clue what was happening, she all of a sudden just kind of sat back and crossed her legs and sat there and I don't know how better to describe it than a brazen hussy. She shifted from being a very shy, insecure, timid, um, middle-aged woman to a very aggressive, very sexually alive kind of a woman. And this was my first exposure ever to MPD. I don't know what to do. Um, do you all know what to do when that happens? I mean, I kind of said something like, who are you? I'm not sure if that's the best clinical technique, but that's what I did. And we ended up giving her a different name. She became Sally, and the more timid one became Mary. Uh, who's the real one? MPD theorists talk about a host personality. It perhaps is a mistake to talk about who is the real person. Better to say, is there a central host personality that in many circles is defined as one of the many alters? The average number of alter personalities, the research says, is about eight per MPD. This particular lady, too, came out and talking with me. If I knew how to deal with it better back then, perhaps it had been several others. But she was a woman who, in her role as very sexualized Sally, had literally seduced seven pastors over the course of the past two or three years. And Mary, the timid girl, had very little awareness of what had happened. She was somewhat amnesic for all that period of time, and she knew that something was dreadfully wrong. Now, when that kind of a person with that kind of a struggle comes to see you, don't you immediately feel like it would be good if there was an afternoon workshop on MPD? And what would you expect to get if you came? 
What would you expect to get if you came to a workshop like that? Where would your minds go? What would you, what would you hope we'd be talking about if you came to that workshop? Any quick thoughts? What would you expect we'd be talking about if you came to that workshop on MPD? What would you want us to be talking about? Things like? All right. Clinical management kind of issues, therapeutic technique, how to integrate the alters into one cohesive personality which somehow reflects the real person, whoever that might happen to be. Other kind of things? Does the scripture seem to apply to it? Are you all thinking of the obvious verses where God has revealed what to do with MPDs? Have you checked your concordance under M? It's just not there, folks. You know, was Nebuchadnezzar MPD? Do you have to stretch things to make that happen? I think you have to stretch pretty badly to make that happen. So how, how do you, how do you, is there any biblical wisdom that seems to apply? Or to put it in the language that we prefer, are there biblical categories that seem to have implications for dealing with a, a multiple personality disorder? Other kind of things you might expect. Biblical categories, clinical management. What else? All right, how to recognize it, how to diagnose, how to ask the right questions to see whether that really is there. The most recent MPD that I worked with, I didn't even start picking it up until the 10th session, when in the middle of a session where she was sobbing hysterically, just very, very sad over something, there was a loud noise that happened to occur outside of my office. I still have no idea what it was, but some kind of a, it sounded like a backfire of a car or a gunshot. We didn't know what it was. And in the middle of her tears, she was sobbing convulsively. She changed just like that. And with a certain tone of sarcasm and almost a superiority, kind of an arrogance, she said, made some comment like, is that one more student you just shot? It was, you know, a minute ago you were crying and now you're attacking me. I don't quite understand what's happening here. And my next sentence to her was, it seemed like you just changed who you were. Are there more than one of you? At that point, she began to cry in a very different way. And her sentence to me was, I'm so glad somebody has recognized it. I felt like more people than one for years, but I've never been able to talk to anybody about it. How do you recognize it? How do you pick it up? When it stares you in the face, sometimes you can't help but pick it up. Other times it's there in a rather hidden kind of a way. What do you do about this kind of stuff? I would think that if you were to come to an MPD workshop, that in addition to clinical management type issues, which are terribly important, in addition to wondering if biblical categories address this kind of a concern, I would think in addition to that, you'd be wondering, like, what's behind it? What are the dynamics what are the forces going on inside the human personality that result in that kind of pathology? And most of you know, if you've read anything at all on the topic, that, that almost in every case, there may be an exception, but the literature always says like 95, 99% of the backgrounds of MPDs includes very severe abuse of some sort. About four years ago, NIMH did a rather extensive study of um, MPDs and determined that 99%, that was the figure they came up with, 99% of MPDs had a history of very significant abuse, most commonly sexual abuse, sometimes physical abuse. Now, one person had been one child when she was a youngster, been buried alive with a stovepipe over her mouth to get uh, air. That's what her father had done to her. And now she's an adult with MPD. What's the relationship? What are the dynamics? What's going on? How do you deal with it? I would think that would be the kind of thing that you might be, you might be, might be questioning, and might be wanting to know. Now, let me tell you that there's a trap in that. If you want to understand how to deal with MPD, 
And therefore, you buy the textbooks and you go to the seminars. If you want to understand how to deal with any of the other more bizarre pathologies and you want to figure out both clinical management and psychodynamics and all the causes and all those fancy things that make most of us feel very incompetent and unlearned, there's a real trap, and I think the trap goes something like this. You might leave that seminar assuming that there are processes going on within an MPD that are entirely dissimilar from the processes going on inside of everybody else. You might make the assumption that there is a method of dealing with a man who loves his wife poorly, but that that method must be radically altered, a whole new way of thinking, before you can adequately deal with a more severe pathology. Is it possible that when people worry about these kinds of questions, which is a very good question to ask, it's one that needs an answer, that, that sometimes we could lose sight of the fact that the exact same structure is common to both the man who loves his wife poorly and the MPD. There's some essential commonality. It's not some weird mystery that requires specialized Gnostic kind of knowledge to be ordered to deal with, in order to deal with it. Is there a basic method which, if I understand, a method which grows out of the scriptures, which, if I understand, I can use that very same method to deal both with the man who loves his wife poorly and the person with the more severe struggles? Well, I believe there is. Behind that question, I think I hear the idea that a general understanding of Christianity is perhaps sufficient to handle general problems. But a special insight is required to handle special problems. What I want to propose is this, that we need to develop a method of counseling built on a model of counseling that is adequate to handle all non-organic problems so you don't shift method, so you don't shift model. There needs to be a way of thinking about the human personality that's as applicable to me, who doesn't happen to struggle with MPD, as it is to your client who has eight or nine different altars. We need a common method, a common model that's adequate to handle all the problems, able to help us think through the difficulties in biblical categories and to move those who struggle toward whatever resolution that finding God provides. If your basic method for helping someone struggling with loneliness or marital tensions or mild depression if your basic method for helping that kind of struggle is different from helping an MPD, then I wonder if your methods fail to reach deeply enough into the core issues beneath all the problems. Did you follow all that? Does that make any sense to you? If you've come wanting to learn how to counsel with an MPD, my, my feeling is that um, if the method that I'm wanting to propose this week and teach you in the course of this evening if it's moving toward an adequately biblical understanding of how to move into people's lives, it will prove a basically sufficient guide to deal with the entire range of human concerns. That's the claim. One value, I would suggest, of studying MPD and other tough, unusual problems is that, I follow this point, is that understanding tough problems like MPD creates a model that can handle lesser problems. But the reverse is not true. If you can think through how to deal with a tough case 
where the person has a variety of alters, you don't know how to integrate them, you say, what's going on? What's the relationship between significant abuse in a person's background and the kind of dynamics that are going on in the human soul that leads to this kind of crazy pathology? If you can think that through, then you'll be developing a way to think through the more, how do I put it, ordinary kinds of problems. But if you limit yourself to thinking about just the ordinary kinds of problems, chances are you may be moving in directions that really amount to superficial solutions and you might develop a method for handling difficult marriages and coming up with communication techniques and coming up with a variety of formulas and procedures and understandings that may seem to have some benefit in dealing with the lesser problems but may not be very adequate at all. I would suggest if you want to think through the human personality well that one of the things you ought to do is to start with some real tough problems. I think it's right for each of us to ask the hardest questions we can think of about our own lives, certainly. The very hardest questions we can think of about our own lives as well as the lives of people who seem to be deeply troubled. That's the hardest questions we can think of in pursuit of a truly biblical method of counseling. Let me just say um, a few more words because the topic is of a fair amount of interest. Just a few little sentences about that before I move on to the second question. MPD has a rather long history. I'm using this as just a foil, just an illustration of a point. MPD has a rather long history. Back in the 1600s, the first reported case was diagnosed. There was a woman who was amnesic for an alter personality who was involved in theft. A woman who would steal, but then seemed to be meaningfully, not just in an excuse-making, gee, I can't remember I did that, not like a kid saying, I forgot, but in a much more meaningful way, having meaningful amnesia for the alter for the other person that was involved in the theft. A major case that was maybe the first major case that was reported was about 150 years later in 1791 when a physician described a case that he called exchange personalities. Do you all know what categories to think in when you hear about this? Do you all know how to start thinking this through? This was a case of a 20-year-old German woman who when she shifted into what he called the exchanged personality, not to be uh, misunderstood with the exchanged life, that she became a French lady who spoke perfect French. And when she was her French lady, she had knowledge of herself as the German lady. When she was the German lady, she had no knowledge of herself as the French lady. What do you do with that when you get crazy stuff like that coming in? What do you do with that when there are such difficulties? What do you do with that when you realize, after using a word like crazy, that a lot of people who, who aren't, aren't crazy at all struggle with things very much like that? There may be some in the room who are aware of feeling very different at different times. There may be some in the room who have the, one of the traditional signs of the MPD of amnesia for particular periods of time. You get someplace and you, know, you have no idea how you got there. You were somebody else getting there. Then you kind of wake up or shift back into a host and have no idea who you were. MPD has become a very popular topic in the last maybe 20 years or so. Beginning in 1970 is when it seemed to start getting very, very popular uh, with a much publicized case of Sybil. Remember that? You about Sybil? This case seemed to be uh, a rather clinically accurately presented case. And um, that began to re-arouse interest. Three Faces of Eve was a more sensationalized one back in the 50s. But in 1971 or thereabouts, when the case of Sybil got reported, MPD began to become a very popular diagnostic category. And I think it's wise for Christians to do two things with this question. One is to realize that, that if a biblical anthropology, if there is an anthropology which is biblical, 
then there are categories that the scriptures delineate that are adequate to think through severe cases like MPD. Don't be spooked by it. Realize that there are biblical categories. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is don't think that you need to develop some kind of special, uh, special wisdom, some long level of training in all the specialized techniques of dealing with MPD in order to handle the tough cases. There may be a method. There may be a core method that grows out of the scripture that's profound enough, that's rich enough, that's broad enough to cover the mild cases all the way to those that we might call the more severe cases. That's question one. And I'm hearing that question a lot as I travel about. The second question that I'm hearing a fair amount, what are we to do with the reality of spiritual warfare? Is that a topic that's been in your minds for a while? Isn't that coming up more and more? What are we to do with the idea of spiritual warfare? How does that fit into an IBC counseling model? Probably one of the most commonly asked questions that Dan and I get as we do our IBC seminars is, um, what are your views on demonism? What are your views on the issues of demonic involvement, demonic oppression, demonic possession, exorcism, deliverance? What do you do with all this kind of thing? It used to be in Christian circles that those who dealt with that were sort of on the fringe left, if I can put it that way. But that's no longer the case. About two months ago, I guess it was, I was having one of my tough nights, which come from time to time, and provide my wife with great joy. And um, I decided to write a letter to a, a, a man that I believe has a lot of wisdom and cares about me. And I wrote this letter at about two in the morning, and it was a very uncensored letter. I didn't try to exercise caution with my words. I wrote to him and I said, Dear friend, and I spent maybe four or five pages of scribbled handwriting in my yellow pad telling him what was going on inside of my mind and heart, what I was thinking. That's probably as open as I've been in print with anybody in my life, I think. He sent me back a letter within a week, and he said to me, and this is a man that knows me not real well, but fairly well. I that letter he knew me a little better. And um, a man whose spiritual wisdom I respect, a man that was a client of mine that became rather close to me, a man that made some real changes as he and I worked together, and we've developed a rather strong letter-writing relationship. And he wrote back within a week, very strong letter. And he said, Larry, I've taken your advice a number of times. I want you to take mine. I have one piece of advice for you, and I insist you do it. You go to the store as quick as you can, and you buy Neil Anderson's work on the bondage breakers. You get the videotape series, and you get the book, where Neil Anderson, a professor of Talbot, is that correct? Somebody can help me with that? Professor Talbot has has written some very well-received work on just how to deal with demonic involvement in a Christian life. What's your position on that? My guess is we have 20 different positions in this room. Some of you would never read a book like that. Others of you live by it. What do you do with the issues of spiritual warfare? It's becoming a much more um, recognized kind of concern, and people are asking questions about it. Mark Bubeck, a pastor from Iowa, has written some rather major works, his most recent one called The Adversary. Another fellow named Timothy Warner, a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, has a rather major book called Spiritual Warfare. John Wimber's ministry deals with a lot of these kinds of issues. Frank Peretti's novel of some years ago, just what, four or five years ago, This Present Darkness, his first of two novels, has alerted the Christian community to the reality of the spiritual battle that's going on and has gotten a whole lot of folks very sensitized to the issue of spiritual warfare. I think it's wise for us to ask the hard questions about that. Now, my particular particular tradition 
makes me kind of do this to that whole subject. That's just my, my tradition. That's my natural way of thinking. Maybe it's my conservatism. I'm not sure what. But is it right for me just to, in an unthinking way, do this? Well, I don't think so. Is it right for me to, in an unthinking way, just embrace? That's no better. But maybe it's time to start thinking hard about what is the what really is the spiritual battle with evil forces, with personal evil forces that is going on inside of the human personality. It's an uncomfortable topic. It's a difficult topic. Folks from different cultures are far more comfortable many times in dealing with it than we pragmatic Americans. What are we going to do with that? I spent time recently and was rather unnerved as I had dinner with... Um, uh, a very conservative, very well-trained pastor, a friend of mine, who told me over the course of conversation that um, his mind had been very much opposed to all the typical kinds of issues of spiritual warfare, thinking that it was getting into all that demon stuff and everybody's got to be exercised and all that. And um, he said that he, his mind became very open to it as the result of an experience. And by the way, that's the way a lot of minds get open to it. Is that good or bad? There's a real question there. In any event, his particular experience was a wife who had a rather major eating disorder. She had struggled with this eating disorder for about 10 years, a rather major problem for her, over which she had had no victory. She had been to biblical counselors, some people that I knew and respected, who, I, who practiced what I would call very good um, biblical counseling, and she had found no help. And one night in the middle of the night, she felt very much awakened by God went downstairs, got out her Bible, and the Lord, as she reports it, directed her to a particular passage where there was a verse that as she read the verse, she felt something inside become released. That was about six months ago, no, eight, ten months ago. I think I'm right, something like that. And since that particular evening, she has had no struggle at all with eating disorder. Now, what do you do with that? Those are what responsible good people are talking about. Some of you are very comfortable, and you're just glad that we're finally getting around to talking about it. Some of you are saying, Larry's getting converted. How about that? Some of you are saying, what's happening to that guy up there? All I'm doing is saying, that's a question I hear a lot. And I suggest that we need, in the first question, to look hard at difficult things going on in the human personality that result in unusual phenomena, phenomena like an MPD, and if our model of understanding people and our method of helping people can't deal with that, then we have a deficient model and a deficient method. The second thing I'm suggesting, because this question is being asked rather commonly now, what are we to do with the reality of spiritual warfare, that we need to take very seriously what all of us believe that we are doing battle with an evil power. That our struggle is with principalities and powers, that, uh, that we are battling against the evil one, and the evil one has a great agenda that's entirely inconsistent with our redeemed hearts, and he'll stop at nothing to accomplish that agenda. Have we grappling honestly with that, and do we, have we thought through a position on how to deal with what's involved with evil forces in our lives? That's the second question I'm hearing a lot about. A third question. Should I get recovery groups going in my church? I hear that all over the place. I had dinner tonight, or just had a few moments tonight, with some good friends who are getting some recovery groups going in their church, and they're very pleased with it. And as I hear them tell the story, I'm very pleased with them. Some of you have heard me take a position against the 12-step movement. You've heard me express significant concerns about the 12 steps. I have very significant concerns about the 12-step movement. Do I have concerns about recovery groups? You bet. 
I have concerns about preaching. <laughs> Does that mean you shouldn't preach? Of course not. After one seminar, where was it, just recently, uh, a couple took me out to lunch, and they specifically asked me to have uh, for, for time, and their basic message to me was this, and they were a very gracious couple, a very loving couple. I was very graciously um, rebuked, if that's the right word, but they said to me that if, if you knew the history that we've come from, if you knew the four marriages I've had up until this current one with this gentleman sitting now at the luncheon table with us, if you knew the mess that our lives have been, and if you knew what the 12-step recovery group you've involved with for the last three years has meant to us, you wouldn't knock it so severely. You'd be a lot more charitable towards it. What do we do with that? There are some who very uncritically accept the whole notion of recovery groups without thinking through some of the issues that are going on. There are some who in a very reactionary way are opposed to anything that smacks of what is not traditional for them. Churches are recognizing more and more, and I think it's a very healthy recognition that I applaud and would like to encourage, they're recognizing that the pulpit, though it may be the center of the ministry, and I believe it is, that the teaching of the Word of God must occupy a very significant place in the Christian community, that it really is not meant to be the flesh and bones of the Christian community, that rather preaching is meant to provide a context that can be fleshed out only in community. Now, what is that community supposed to look like? Is it not true that so many of us in our evangelical traditions have experienced such dryness in community that we're thrilled to get in a group, whether it's 12-step or 20-step or 2-step or whatever the dance might be, that we're thrilled to get in some kind of a group that at least deals with what's happening in our lives and we're seeing some good things happening? Now, what are we going to do with this 12-step thing? What are we going to do with recovery groups? How are we going to develop groups? I think we're all ag agreed that Christians should get together. We're not to forsake assembling ourselves together. And when we get together, we're supposed to be thinking hard about what it means to encourage one another, to come alongside of one another, and to prod each other toward Christ-likeness. Do the 12 steps summarize that? Are there other ways of thinking about it? We all agree that groups for the purpose of recovery are good things. What do we do in these kind of groups? Groups meet for Bible study and prayer? Is that the basic thing that should happen? Should groups meet for an open discussion of life? Should there be a structure that's involved? What are the issues that need to be thought about? A few months ago, John Piper, the author of Desiring God, you know that book? He's a pastor in Minneapolis, and he had a pastor seminar, and he asked me to come and speak on the 12-step movement. And Minneapolis is one of the leading headquarters of the 12-step movement. And I spoke in the 12-step movement to 180 pastors. And there was a fair amount of hostility and a fair amount of affirmation. It's hard to think through. What are the issues? I hear that question time and time again. And I hear the Christian church. It's funny, isn't it, how we always find something to divide over? If it isn't millennial issues, now it's 12 steps. You know, it's something. We're going to... Find something to divide over in the course of the church. By the way, that's one of the nice things about a week like this. We all agree with everything, right? <laughs> the last of the four questions that strike me as rather significant in our culture. Doesn't the Bible tell us simply to believe God and do what he says and forget all this counseling malarkey? Have you ever been disturbed as you've thought through counseling issues? Ever been disturbed after reading Inside Out to put it down and pick up your Bible and say, do these two square? 
It's bothered me a few times. You ever read your Bible and get the impression that what God is calling us to do is stop fussing with all this stuff, believe what He says, and just shape up? Luthetic counseling has made a whole movement out of that. Essentially. It's very easy, very, very easy, it seems to me, to get caught up in lots of ideas about how to help people that arouse fervor, that feel like something very significant and important is going on, to get involved in ideas that seem to make changes in people's lives that the traditional church has not been making, and then to begin to almost hate tradition and to hate complicated thinking, and to want to get back just to the simple gospel. What does Paul mean when he says that I want you to maintain your simplicity in Christ? How do you maintain your simplicity in Christ when you're going to counsel with an MPD tomorrow morning? What does simplicity mean? Maybe it does not mean simplistic. Maybe it allows for a lot of hard, deep, rich, troubling thinking as long as all the thinking we do is clearly rooted in something that's very, very basic. And we see its application to all these various issues, whether it's NPD or spiritual warfare, recovery groups, or simple obedience. Maybe we need to return, many would say this, to a far more explicitly, biblically grounded system. Maybe we need to stop all the psychological type nonsense and get back to a system that is far more exegetically supportable which it runs in close danger to becoming a proof-texted system, but may not have to be that. Maybe we need to depend more on biblical language for our discussions and use only biblical language and not use language borrowed from our psychological culture. That, by the way, is one of the major criticisms of the Newthetic camp towards IBC. I've heard that many, many times from John Bettler at CCEF. Some of you know John, a friend of mine. Uh, Jay has told me this, Jay Adams. He has said to me that, uh, Larry, he says, I don't like your language. He said, where do you find four circles in the Bible? Where do you find beneath the waterline in the Bible? Where do you find R1s, R2s, V1s, V2s? And of course, he has a bit of a point there. I can't find them in the Bible either. But are they biblical concepts dressed up in modern language that perhaps communicates? That's obviously my position. His concern is, let's avoid any possible compromise with the spirit of the age by remaining rooted in biblical language. Is that a point that we ought to think about? Do we need to focus far more on what the Bible, at least by one reading, seems to focus on, namely, more teaching, more exhortation, more accountability? Is that what our counseling should be all about? People like Jay and Jay Adams and John MacArthur are, um, are heralding this as a very real concern. Four questions that are being raised. We'll break in just three minutes. Let me just tell you the second element. I told you there were two elements that are on my mind as I develop my thinking for the week in terms of a focus on method. How do we go about this actually counseling enterprise? How do we go about sitting down with somebody who's struggling and really dealing with them? Don't you all feel, if you have... Oh, most of you feel this way, I suppose. I do. Don't you feel that most of your counseling sessions, you're real glad weren't taped?
And don't you feel that you come to a group like this, you've all been through a basic seminar, you've had other training, and a lot of you are professional counselors, a lot of you are in the ministry, all of you deal with people, you're all wanting to help people biblically, you all love the Lord. Don't you all feel that if you were to play a videotape of your counseling session, we put it up on the, on the screen up here, wouldn't there be kind of a mood of... <laughs> Because the truth of the matter is that when you counsel, you know you're largely flying by the seat of your pants. You don't know what you're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. We're going to have a great time this week. But maybe there is some kind of a basic method that grows out of a couple of important ways of thinking. What I want us to do this week is think through this method that deals with the issues raised by these four questions, element one behind my thinking, and that also deals with element two, and that has to do with the fundamental purpose of a counselor. Let me say a word about this, and I'll look at this more carefully after a break. When I say that I really worry sometimes that all of us as counselors and many of us as churches, as we seek to deal with people's lives, that maybe we're building on a wrong foundation. Maybe we're off in a wrong direction. I want to suggest to you that maybe there are two elements to a very bad foundation that much of our counseling is built on. The first element is this. The first assumption is this. Do we assume that the central purpose of counseling is to solve problems? When you sit down to counsel, what are you trying to do? Is your real purpose to help the bulimic stop purging and binging? Is, do you have any higher purpose than helping the multiple integrate? Is there a greater transcendent purpose than helping the depressive feel better? Are you content when the people who are struggling with a marriage commit and report great satisfaction? I visited the church that Rachel and I attended in Indiana just a few weeks ago. I had a chance to preach there. And there's a couple there that were in a group that Rachel and I were involved with. And she was badly bulimic for a number of years. She was hospitalized off and on again. The marriage was terrible. And um, when I went back to visit, she's doing wonderfully. She's just a happy loving woman. Her husband told me over lunch, he said, we've been married now for, I forget how many years, 16. And he said, I, we can finally say we're glad we're married to each other. That was a real big sentence. He had tears in his eyes. This is a big macho guy, never has emotion. He was thrilled about that, and I was thrilled with him. But I'll tell you why I was thrilled. Because that wasn't the foremost thing in either of their minds. The happiness with their marriage, which was significant and wonderful and I'm thrilled about, was a byproduct of something higher. Do we have in our minds that when we sit down to counsel, that our central purpose with which we'll be satisfied is to solve problems or to relieve pain or to get things happening better? And then secondly, the second element in this concern of mine is do we believe that the uniqueness of biblical counseling is the patterns that the Bible reveals that we can follow to make life work? When you call yourself a biblical counselor, nobody would call yourselves an unbiblical counselor. So if you call yourself a biblical counselor, what does that mean? What defines the way you talk to people as biblical? Is it biblical because 
When the people have a marriage problem, you say divorce is not acceptable because the Bible says not. Does that make your counseling biblical? I want to suggest to you that you can have moral parameters which the Bible lays down, operate within them, and not even be close to being biblical. And be nothing but pharisaical. When the husband and wife are fighting and you start talking about submission and headship, you can do that with carefully exegeted concepts and not be biblical. What does it mean to do biblical counseling? My concern, to put it in a rather simple kind of a way, that without reflecting very carefully, that many times we operate, if the truth were known, and we could watch the sessions that we uh, actually conduct with people, that we're really trying to find some way to use God to solve our problems, the priority therefore becomes what? The quality of my life now. There's no higher value. Or are we somehow responding to our problems as reason to pursue the Lord and to worship Him? I wonder if there's not an important distinction between using God to solve our problems and worshiping God as we pursue Him in the midst of unresolved problems. Two concerns. One, the common questions that I'm hearing time and time again in our culture, raising issues of dynamics, spiritual battles, issues of recovery, issues of obedience. And secondly, the issue of are we really, in our counseling, moving in directions that rightly justifies the label biblical? We'll look at this more carefully after about a 15-minute break. Let's take a break. Briefly review with a little more focus the four questions that I raised and tell you the issues that they create for me as I try to develop a, a method of approaching <clears throat> helping people with their struggles. The first question, what do I do with unusual problems like NPD? It seems to me that the common answer to that, the way most of us think about that, um, that question, is that if we're to do a good job of counseling with people with more severe type difficulties, things that are more outside the realm of what we would call normal or usual or common, things that we don't have a reference point for, the first thing to do in the minds of many, it seems to me, is you must study the whole area of psychodynamics, a fancy word that most of you know. My simple-minded definition is what happens inside of a person as that person experiences life. That's all that it means. What's going on inside of that little child who's buried alive by his parents with a stovepipe over his mouth to keep him alive? What goes on in a human soul when that kind of thing takes place? What are the, what are the dynamics that take place in a human soul when a person is sexually abused or demeaned or all the different things that happen, whether it's good families or bad families? The first thing that most people, I think, would focus on when they want to deal with unusual problems is what about the issue of psychodynamics and then to be trained first study something and then secondly get some training whether through seminars or a workshop at a seminar or books that you read special courses get some kind of training in clinical management do you talk to the various altars? do you assume as you're talking to the host that the other altars are listening? things like that Clinical management. And how do you provide meaningful interpretations uh, to the uh, person struggling with the major kind of concern? So the focus that comes out of the first question is would somebody make clear the issues of dynamics so I can get some handle as to what's going on inside of these people with these unusual problems so I can have some idea as to how to interpret these various deep issues. Most of us who don't have training in sophisticated psychodynamics feel totally out of our league in counseling with people with these unusual struggles. 
struggles. Therefore, a focus on dynamics grows out of the first question. The second question, what are we to do with the reality of spiritual warfare? The common answer is be aware of the devil's strategies. Study demonic strategies. Unmask the angel of light. Don't be deceived. Understand how Satan works. Begin to study that. And then learn strategies that many books are coming up with for how to break bondage. How do you deal directly? How do you confront directly these spiritual powers? Do you address them by name? Almost like an MPD thing. Do you cast them out? Do you simply pray? Are there a series of steps that need to be followed before meaningful deliverance takes place? Is there release through confrontation with the demonic world with the authority of Jesus? That's being done very, very commonly today. And that's the second issue of concern. What about the matter of deliverance? The first is the matter of dynamics. The second, the matter of deliverance. The third question... Should I get recovery groups going in my church? The common answer to that, as people start wrestling with the realization that the church is now coming to grips with in the past maybe 10 or 15 years, that so many folks sitting in the pews have have tremendously dysfunctional backgrounds. And you start hearing the folks tell their stories and you get overwhelmed. And you realize that the nice lady you sit next to on Sunday morning that you know her name and know a little about her, who sings the hymns very nicely, who has a great alto voice, and as part of a committee to serve the refreshments at the different uh, functions of the church, you start realizing that her history is horrendous. You begin listening to her tell her stories, and you begin wondering what on earth are the effects of all that dysfunctional background on a very core issue of what does she think of herself? What's her self-esteem like? What is her estimate of herself? Uh, How has it been affected by all the issues in her background? So study that. Come to grips with that. Read the books by Bradshaw. Read the books by Melody Beattie. Come to understand these people who have devoted their recent lives to thinking through how difficult backgrounds uh, demean and produce a profound sense of shame that make us hate our womanhood or manhood and despise our lives and wish we were dead half the time and make us get up in the middle of the night and scream in pain wishing we had some sense of self that felt powerful and a good sense of that word. After studying those effects, then be trained in group process. Be trained in group techniques or maybe individual techniques that have as their function releasing shame. Learn how to overcome the shame. The number of books that are out on this topic are increasing by the, by the day. Um, I'm told by um, a, a, student of, a former student of ours who now works at the Meyer Minnes Clinic in Chicago that the Meyer Minnes Publishing Company is coming out with, I think he said, 30 books in the next year having to do with overcoming shame. Overcoming the effects of a dysfunctional background, primarily shame. So how do we deal with that? How do we get over these issues of shame? Uh, Sandy Wilson has a book called, um, I'm blocking on it now, Release from Shame. Yeah, Release from Shame. Um, A woman who teaches part-time at Trinity Seminary and some other places. Um, Focus on recovery. Come to some understanding of how how we can recover what it means to be alive as a human being. Learn what it means to affirm and to hold accountable in community. That's what the third question causes us to think about. Dynamics, um, deliverance, recovery. And now the fourth question. Doesn't the Bible tell us to simply believe God and to do what he says? The common answer to that, if you take that position and say, you know, I'm really thinking that all this counseling stuff's getting pretty complicated. The Bible's kind of simple. 
seems like God just says, look, here's what you need to do. Believe me and go do it. Um, then you realize, if you're not a simplistic thinker, that there is going to be some complexity. But what you study then is not internal dynamics. That's Freudian, say the folks who are critical from this end of the spectrum. Don't study dynamics. Don't study the unconscious. Don't look at childhood memories. That's just making excuses for the present. What you need to do is study biblical principles of living. One pastor who takes this position very strongly uh, every year takes his elders through the book of Proverbs looking for biblical principles to guide our lives. Here's the way to deal with conflict. Here's the way to deal with stress. Here's what God says to do when there's tension in your marriage. Here's what God says to do when your kids are rebellious. Here's what God says to do when you're feeling badly about a variety of things. Study biblical principles of living. And then training and counseling coming out of this mentality is training in how to apply these principles to life. The focus here is on obedience, teaching, and exhortation from a spiritual leader. Four questions which raise four topics that are important topics that we need to take positions on and to think through. And I hope in the course of this week that you'll hear a sensitivity on our part to the validity of each of these concerns. Each of us has a story to tell. Some of us have horrible stories. Others of us are more blessed and our stories are pretty pleasant with a couple of tough spots along the way. But because of our unique stories, there are dynamics. If you don't like the word, there are things going on inside of us. And they have some effects on how we're living. And what are we as counselors to do with that? The topic of dynamics. The topic of deliverance. There really is a spiritual battle going on. What does it mean to resist the devil? Then he will flee from you. What are the issues there? There really are issues of self-esteem that, that difficult backgrounds have demeaned us rather badly. And then if there's something legitimate, we all feel this, about the Lord restoring our soul or finding ourselves. Is that a valid version of that? Is there some way that we're supposed to recover some sense of who we are, that we don't have to walk around uh, feeling terrible about ourselves and embarrassed to say hello to somebody and afraid to say no to a request for serving on a committee meeting and being able to stand up in a healthy, aggressive way and to be rather bold in our movement toward other people? Is there a sense in which recovery of a self is appropriate? Well, I sure think so. And is there a sense in which sometimes the word obedience gets minimized in the middle of all these psychological sounding things and we need to get back to focusing on obedience? Or Those are four issues that I think any attempt to deal with people comprehensively needs to take into account. So that's the first element that I've talked about that's affecting my thinking in the course of this week. The second element I just introduced to you, let me make a few more comments about it. The second element has to do with this growing conviction that I have that somehow the direction that we often take in counseling may be built on a very wrong foundation. Let me just repeat myself and add a few thoughts. I wonder if most of us, without thinking hard, just reflexively, make an assumption. And the assumption is that when somebody brings a problem to you and says, I'd like to, I'd like to be counseled by you, I'd like to talk to you about my life, that their agenda which is somehow finding a way to overcome the problem, is appropriate as the central agenda. Maybe that's not really appropriate. If I come to you and talk to you about a problem, I mean, I, I know it's on my mind. Can you get, help me get rid of it? 
that seems to make sense. If there's a difficulty in my marriage or with my kids or struggling with depression, I, then I bring it to you. I hope you'll do something that, that I'm going to measure the success of which by whether I don't feel as depressed. Is that legitimate? The answer is, well, of course, to some degree, but is that the highest value? It struck me, maybe in the last year or so, it struck me rather strongly that, that the first thing Cain did, the leader of that one ungodly line, there was a godly line from Seth, Abel's replacement, if you will, and the ungodly line of Cain. And he looked at the Bible, you find these two streams of humanity, and they're very, very different. And Cain, the beginner of this ungodly line, what's the first thing that he did? If you've been to recent seminars, you know what I'm going to say. What's the first thing that Cain did after God punished him? God said to him for presenting a wrong offering, and, uh, and he got mad about that, and he kills his brother, and then God calls him to ask for that and punishes him by saying, you're going to be a wanderer the rest of your life. The first thing Cain did after the punishment, it's in Genesis 4 and verse 8 maybe, he built a city. It's the first thing he did. He built a city. His attitude was, all right, you kicked mom and dad out of the garden, you tell me I'm not going to be able to establish a home. Well, let me tell you something. I'm going to find a way to do it. I'm going to find some way to make my life work down here. Genesis 4.17, my notes tell me as I look at it now. I wonder if there's something of Cain in all of us. I wonder if there's something inside of me that is determined and perhaps above all other passions... Something in me that's determined above all other passions to recreate the garden, even if just for a moment. What's the appeal of the addictive disorders? What's the appeal of the drugs? What's the appeal of the, of the sexual tryst? What's the appeal of the playboy? What's the appeal of whatever it is that brings me for a moment a sense of being back in the garden? Do we have a little bit of Cain in us who says that I'm going to recreate the garden, even though I know I'm out of it, or to put it differently, I'm going to build a city where life will go as I want it to go. Now follow a terribly important point. If there's something in fallen humanity that's determined to build a city and to make our lives work, then the most important thing to us is going to be to somehow get our lives under control. I'm counseling with a gentleman currently. And just last week, I noticed after six or seven sessions, I noticed something about his style of relating, about his pull that I really hadn't seen before very clearly at all. Last Tuesday, he said to me, as I was uh, making a point, he said to me, let me see if I have you straight here, Larry. Let me see if I get what you're saying. And it clicked with me. He says that after everything I say. Let me see if I can get what you're saying. And I thought he was just very intrigued with the complexity of my brilliant thinking, you know. But I, I, it all began to fall into place last week as, as, I, as I realized that for the last seven or eight sessions, he's done that a lot. And every time he summarized my thinking, I remember inside just squirming and saying, no, not, not, not quite that. And he'd say, well, make it clear, you know, and I'd try to make it clear. I mean, see how the sharp counselor I am? I mean, that's pathetic. Now, on my part, not on his. And, and as he was saying, and he's saying, now, make, make sure I'm getting this, Larry. And last, last week, I, I stopped and I noticed, and I said, T tell me why you asked that. He said, well, I'm just trying to get a hold of what, you're, of what you're saying. And my next sentence was, so you can get on top of it. I said, oh, yeah. I've got to make sense of something. And I said, how are you doing with God? 
making sense of him? And he said, I will trust nothing or no one that I cannot define. Well, that eliminates God. And yet he was demanding that he build his city by staying on top of it. And once you have to stay on top of it, you refuse to enter mystery. Once you have to stay on top of it, then you're required to no longer acknowledge that life is crazy. You're required to not face the fact that there is a lot less predictability in life than you'd like there to be. That there's very few guarantees. If you want to build your city, you've got to manage life. And to manage life, you must define life as an orderly proposition where if I do this, then this will follow. There's got to be some system where I can figure out walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. So if I walk in the spirit, then I will have love, joy, and peace. I've got to find somebody to get on top of that. There must be no mystery. It must be manageable. I must reduce mystery to manageable categories. And then I go to the Bible with that determination, and my exegesis becomes colored by that demand. And out comes a variety of very specific manageable patterns, which I call the route to life. And when they don't work, I close my Bible and try some other route. Because my core commitment is to find some way to build a city. And I wonder if many of my counseling efforts, and perhaps yours, really consist of providing people with blueprints to build their cities. Do we spend more time figuring out the order of things with our well-being in view than entering into the mystery of God with a passion to know Him better? I feel a great deal of frustration with all the charts I come up with. Because none of them does for me what I wish they'd all do. We make an assumption that the central purpose of counseling is to solve problems, to make our lives work better in this world. Is that something that's being done in the spirit of Cain? And we as counselors cooperate by trying to remove the mystery of life and make things manageable and predictable in a way that eliminates trust in an unpredictable and unmanageable sovereign God. The second element in my concern here, first, is that the essential purpose of counseling is to solve problems. And the second part of this is that many times we assume, what I've already implied, that the uniqueness of biblical counseling is that it reveals patterns that we can follow to make life work. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.